invite you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 2 in the Old Testament. It's page 307 in these Bibles from the pews. 2 Kings chapter 2. If you're uh, with us today for the first time in quite a while, we've, we've had uh, a series of sermons on the life of Elijah. And I'm going to uh, wrap this up today where we come to where God takes Elijah directly into heaven. Elijah doesn't experience death as we know it. And so I'm jumping ahead 18 years from where we left off last, last Sunday morning, where Elisha is, is, uh, receives the mantle of Elijah to be his successor as the prophet of God at that time in that place. And so... 2 Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's word. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel, came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry land. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, And what shall I do for you before I am taken from you? And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet... If you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Now he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Our Father, you, you tell us that, that your word is given for teaching and for reproof, for correction and training and righteousness. So we pray that you would use it now in our lives. Give us hearts that are quick 
to hear that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. In Jesus' name, amen. The sense that we as humans will live forever someplace has shaped every civilization throughout human history. The Australian Aborigines pictured heaven as a distant island beyond the western horizon. The early Finnish people believed that it was an island in the faraway east. The Mexicans, the Peruvians, the Polynesians believed they went to the sun or the moon after death. Native Americans believed that in the afterlife their spirits would hunt the spirits of buffalo. And in the Gilgamesh epic, the ancient Babylonian legend, it refers to a resting place of heroes and hence at a tree of life. And in the pyramids of Egypt, the embalmed bodies had maps placed beside them as guides to the future world. The Romans believed that the righteous would picnic in the Elysian fields while their horses grazed nearby. If you remember in the movie Gladiator, Maximus says to his officers at the very beginning of the movie, three weeks from now I will be harvesting my crops. Imagine where you will be and it will be so. Hold the line and stay with me. If you find yourself alone riding in the green fields with the sun on your face, do not be troubled, for you are in Elysian and you are already dead. Although these depictions of the afterlife differ, what we have is a testimony that unifies us as the human heart throughout history in a belief in life after death. In fact, anthropologists tell us that there's probably not a culture that doesn't have some kind of innate sense of the eternal, that this world is not all that there is. Now, Peter Kreeft, in his book, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Heaven, writes that the human race has come up with five basic answers on what happens after we die. And the Bible gives us a sixth answer. But the five are, and I'll be extremely brief here, First, and these are not in order of importance, but one view is annihilation. That is, we are annihilated at death. Nothing more will exist. Death ends all. And the only thing left is our reputation, our deeds, our children, which will go on after us. The second view is that we survive after death, but only as ghosts. We become pale shadows of the living cells we once were. This is the mythic view of the shades of Hades. It's the belief that most ancient tribes and cultures, even the early Jews and Greeks. And so we become less. At death, we become, by this view, we become less than we are in life. Third view is reincarnation. It continues to be popular in many places. And we come back to earth in another mortal body. Fourth view is the natural immortality of the soul that that each individual's disembodied spirit, liberated by death, survives as a spirit like an angel and that our spirits have been imprisoned in these bodies and at death those spirits are released this is also called platonism some people confuse it with christianity but this this isn't talking about a supernatural resurrection but a natural immortality so for platonism or that view death is nothing and uh, Socrates had that view. So when he faced death, it was with complete indifference. The body seen as a mere prison. The fifth view is the cosmic consciousness view, i.e. Star Wars, Hinduism, Buddhism. The only thing that survives death is the only thing that was real before death, and that is your cosmic consciousness. 
the one, the Atman, the Buddha mind, the perfect, the eternal, the trans-individual spirit. So in Hinduism and Buddhism, death is nothing because we already are everything and we're part of everything and death doesn't change that. Death simply occurs within the all-encompassing everything that we are. I have a friend that many of you know and he was told me he, he was uh, in a coffee shop in, in Athens and he met a, a young a graduate student and he said what's your name and I think she said her name was Sally and they talked and he said well what do you believe about God she said well I'm a um, I'm a Zen Buddhist and he said look I know what Buddhism is but why, I don't know what Zen Buddhism is why don't you tell me about it and so she was telling him and he knew more than he was letting on and she as he talked to her after, he said, well, Mary, you know how a minute ago, and she said, wait a minute, I told you my name is Susan. He said, oh, yeah, 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 right, it's Susan. I was saying, and so a few minutes later as they're talking, he says, Mary, you know how you said, again, he said the wrong, called her by the wrong name, and she kind of got angry at that point. I said, why are you calling me by the wrong name? He said, she said, I told you what my name was, and you're intentionally calling me by something else. And he said, the reason I'm calling you by that is because your identity is important to you. Now, how does it bring you any comfort to believe in something that where your identity is going to be completely lost when you're dead? Does that comfort you? And she obviously really began to think. So those are the five views that culture holds about what happens after this life. In any, whether you're a Christian or an atheist or whatever, everybody in here probably has some idea about one of those views that you say, yeah, that makes sense to me. What does the Bible present? It presents a unique position compared to all the others. And that is, we become more at death than we were in this life. That's totally unique. No other view of death uh, or the afterlife has that. And so we are promised a new and a better resurrected body C.S. Lewis, in his book on miracles, wrote that the records represent Christ as passing after death neither into a purely spiritual mode or purely human. But it was an improvement. It was better. It was glorified. Okay, you say, what does this have to do with Elijah? It's got a lot to do with what we see here in this passage. Now, let's, let's look in, at Elijah. Because in the Bible, only Elijah and a man named Enoch are privileged not to die, but they are taken directly up into heaven. You can read about Enoch in Genesis 5. It said he walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. And so let's look briefly, and I know the kids are here, and I'm going to, some of this may, uh, I'll let y'all explain it over hot dogs and hamburgers at lunch. Listen, if you said, I'm not going to eat those hot dogs and hamburgers, I just want a salad. Well, you can take the lettuce and tomato off and put it on a plate. And <laughs> Hey, we're flexible here. I mean, don't, please don't leave. We've got plenty of food. Okay, I'm just going to give this to you in about three scenes. The first scene is uh, the trip that Elijah and Elisha are making from Gilgal to the Jordan River. Uh, as I mentioned uh, here at Chapter 2 of 2 Kings, we have jumped ahead 18 years of where we left off last week where Elisha, Elijah uh, commissions uh, Elisha to be his successor at God's command. And so now much has happened. Ahab has died by a single arrow in a, Bible, in a battle. His son Ahaziah becomes king, and that's very short-lived. I'm jumping past all of that 
to, to the end here of, of Elijah's ministry. And so God had revealed to Elijah that, that his time on this earth was almost over. And so in Bethel, verse 3 says, they meet this group called the Sons of the Prophets. Now this is strange. We've not encountered that phrase in the Bible up to here. Who were these guys? Well, from what we know in 1 Kings that, that mentions them, they're not the physical children. They're not the physical sons of prophets. It's more like a prophetic school or an association. And Elijah and Elisha were probably leaders of such a group as this. So here are these sons of the prophets, these students, you might say, and they serve as witnesses to what God is doing. And they say to Elisha in verse 3, uh, do you know that the Lord today will take away your master from you? Then from Bethel, Elijah and Elisha traveled 12 miles down to the city of Jericho. And a similar group of these sons of the prophets are there in Jericho, and they say the same thing to Elisha. Do you know that today your Lord will take your master away from you? Now, um, where are these guys, by the way? Uh, where are these sons of the prophets residing? Well, they're in Bethel and they're in Jericho. Bethel was like the center of idolatry. King Jeroboam had set up a golden calf there as an, as an idol. And Jericho had been cursed when it had been defeated by Joshua, when the Israelites came into the promised land. And so God has put the sons of the prophets, his messengers, strategically in these very godless places. And it's the same today. I remember when I was a campus minister, I went to speak at a small church in, uh, I don't remember the town, it was in Arkansas. And a man came up to me after I had spoken, and he said, so you're up there in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I said, yeah. He said, man, you're living in a den of iniquity. Well, that could probably be said of most college campuses today. What better place to minister? You're in Bethel? You're in Jericho? You're in Macon, Georgia? Or you're in Athens? <laughs> Burke? Or I uh, didn't say Atlanta. I mean, you're in these places. God places his salt where it's needed. We're to be salt and light in the world. All the more reason to bear witness to the gospel. Well, that's a side note. But at both places, these sons of the prophets address the pending departure of Elijah. And Elisha says, yeah, I know about it, but, but be quiet. I don't want to talk about it. He was aware that it was almost finished. But think, 18 years. For 18 years, he had been mentored by Elijah. He had served and waited on Elijah. 18 years, that's a long time. And now he's going to be separated from this one he loved and cared for and respected and had been dependent on. Um, perhaps you've experienced the dread of separation when you know that loved one's getting ready to be deployed in the military. And you see the date on the calendar and, or that child's going off to college. I, I used to stand back here on Sundays uh, and in August, when people take their kids off to college, and more than once, I'd have a mom come out and go, oh, we took little Johnny off to college yesterday. I just don't know what I'm going to And I would kind of stand there and go, what is the problem? And then we took our, we took our uh, daughter, Julie, to Belhaven College. 
in Jackson, Mississippi, and we were driving back and stopped at Briarwood Presbyterian to go to church, and I see Harry Reeder, the pastor, afterward going, oh, we took our car. <laughs> Elisha says, yeah, yeah, I know. I know God's going to take him, but I don't want to talk about it. It was too painful to talk about. So in verses 4 and 6, Elijah tries to get Elisha not to go with him. Stay here, Elisha. And yet he's determined to accompany him. It shows Elisha's commitment. In verse 7, they come to the Jordan, and it says they're being watched by some 50 of these sons of the prophets. And they they followed them when they left Jericho, and now they're at the Jordan River. And they they watch as Elijah uh, rolls up his cloak, and he strikes the water, and it parts, and they, they walk through on dry land. This is almost the same terminology as when the Israelites went through the Red Sea. Now in scene two, we see Elijah's request. They, they come across the Jordan. They, they cross through it. And in verse nine, Elijah says, ask me what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha says, please let there be a double portion of your spirit upon me. Now, what does he mean? He means he's using terminology that was inheritance language. In Israel, the oldest son received a double share of the portion of the inheritance. And he also received the right of succession. That was true in the family for the oldest son. And so what Elisha is asking for is not only to be Elijah's successor or heir, but he's wanting to continue the work and he wants the work to be even more and greater, the work of God that had been carried out under Elijah. So it's not a request that's selfish or prideful when he says, let a double portion come to me or fall on me. He has a desire to accomplish more for God. We often uh, are afraid to ask God to do great things through us, but we shouldn't be. If our motives are pure, we shouldn't be afraid to, to ask God to give us wisdom and power to serve him and to make an impact for him. Verse 10, Elijah says, you've asked a hard thing. In other words, I can't, I can't make that determination. It wasn't up to Elijah, uh, but it was up to God whether Elisha's request would be met. But he does have the insight. God lets him know that if you see me as I'm being taken from you, what you're requesting will be so. So in just a few moments, Elisha will be the prophet to stand in the place of Elijah. And he's been training for this, as I mentioned, for 18 years. Now, I want to say this uh, just on the the side. You can only develop so much as a follower. As a a Christian, the Bible says we're new believers are like babies, and we grow and we mature, and we need to follow, especially when we're babes in Christ, but then we need to influence and lead others. Uh, And you will stunt your growth if you only follow. Uh, all of us that's in some fashion or form need to be ministering to others. I was reading about, a, and y'all may know this better than I do, but I, I really researched this. Um, there's a popular saltwater aquarium fish. Uh, it's, a, it's a type of shark. I don't remember the particular type. But if you catch one when it's small enough and you put it into a, an aquarium, a, a big saltwater aquarium, then it will only grow proportionally to the size of its environment. 
So this shark, this particular shark, in an aquarium of a certain size will grow to be six inches long. But if you could take that and release it into the ocean, it will grow to be eight feet long. Now, what's that got to do with What are you talking about? Your growth will be stunted in Christ if you strictly stay in the role of a follower. And so we need, as people say, at least three types of relationships. We need relationships with people who are mentoring us. We need relationships with peer Christians. And we need relationships with those we are mentoring. Now, verses 11 and 12. Elijah's taken to heaven. Ray Dillard, in his commentary on Elijah and Elisha, says that in ancient Canaan, Baal was known as the rider of the clouds. That was one of his titles. He was the warlike weather deity, and so the billowing clouds of the storm were viewed as the battle chariot on which Baal, the god that the Phoenicians and others worshipped, rode. And so they viewed thunder and lightning as, as his voice and the lightning as his spear. And so the challenges from Elijah had already shown back on Mount Carmel that Baal had no power. And those titles, as the scriptures say, belong to the God of Israel. Deuteronomy and Psalm 68 and Psalm 104 call God the rider of the clouds. The great Lord of Israel rides on the heavens in his storm chariot, we are told in Psalm 68. Yahweh's chariot is the whirlwind, we find in Psalm 66 and in Jeremiah 4. So when Elisha saw the whirlwind... And the fire and the horses, the symbolism is unmistakable. This is the warrior God, the captain of the armies of heaven, and he's come to retrieve his servant. Elijah had fought the good fight, and now God, his commander, is going to come take him out of the battle to his heavenly reward. And Elisha is allowed to see it. He's allowed to watch it. Now, y'all still with me? Okay, I'm going to get somewhat technical for the next couple of minutes. And that is the parallel, that we see a, a parallel of Elijah's life with two others in the Bible. Um, with Moses and also with Christ. The parallel between Moses and Elijah is evident in many ways. Both had spoken to God on Mount Sinai. Moses lived with food in the wilderness called manna. Elijah lived with the widow, and God had provided food for them through the barrel that did not run out. Moses stood before Pharaoh and challenged the gods of Egypt. Elijah stood before Ahab and challenged the gods of the Canaanites. Both showed their control over nature in different ways. Moses parted the Red Sea. Elijah did so with the Jordan. But the most important and numerous parallels occurred in the chapters we studied the past couple of weeks, and that's 1 Kings 19, when he goes to Mount Sinai, Elijah does, as Moses did. Forty days and forty nights, just like Moses. He encounters Yahweh passing by. He commissions him to designate a successor. For Elijah, that would be Elisha. For Moses, that would be Joshua. And now he departs this life in a similar fashion as Moses, uh, who was not carried off in a chariot of fire, but, but, God, but God took him out of sight and buried him in a place no one knew. But there's also a parallel between Elijah and Christ. Just as Elijah is here taken up into heaven, so Christ was received into the clouds at his ascension. The angels reminded his disciples that Jesus would come back in the same way that they had seen him go into heaven.
Now, here's the part where we need some correct thinking. The Bible tells us that when Christ returns, he will appear in the sky, it says in Revelation, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. Now, for some reason, often in religious art, the coming of Christ is, the second coming, is portrayed with a blue sky and these cotton-like clouds. And then this friendly, smiling, feminine, often case, Jesus is floating down. Those totally miss the point of the biblical description. When Jesus returns in the clouds, from what we see in the Bible, they're not going to be white and fluffy. They're going to be dark and laden with flashes of lightning and strong wind, for he's coming to judge the earth and to avenge himself on his enemies. And that's why the disciple John, in the, re in the vision of Revelation in chapter 1, says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. I was studying this passage earlier this week, and I came home one afternoon. I don't forget, we had rain like for 30 minutes one day, it seemed like. But Barbara said, have you looked and seen the, the, the sky? And you looked south, and it was clear, and looked up north, and it was just black. And I thought, that is what it's saying there in, in Revelation. That's the picture of the clouds. It's going to be black and dark, and so the, when it says the people mourn, because he's coming in judgment. So what happened to Elijah? Do we ever see him again? Well, at the end of the Old Testament, in the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, he says that before Christ comes, before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come. Christ told us that was John the Baptist, who came in the spirit of Elijah, figuratively. So John was not Elijah himself, but he came like Elijah, as a prophet in the wilderness. But then later, in the passage we read earlier in the service from Matthew 17, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah himself appears in conversation with Jesus. And we believe this was to encourage Jesus. So Jesus goes up on this mountain. He takes with him three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. They are there on this mountain, and appearing with Jesus is Moses and Elijah, and they're talking with Jesus. Now, J.C. Ryle, the great pastor and, and Bible teacher, he said that that passage of the transfiguration is the greatest and clearest passage in the Bible on what happens to believers after death. Now, let me tell you why I said that, because that's a pretty strong statement from someone who knew the Scripture so well. He says, we have in the transfiguration the clearest evidence the dead will rise again. Why did he say that? First, the glory that's shown. These verses at the transfiguration, back earlier in your bulletin, Matthew 17, show us how the Lord and his people will appear, will appear for the second time. His face shone like the sun. His clothes were white as light, it says in verse 2. Now, the reason this was done was to allow Peter, James, and John to have a glimpse of what Christ was talking about, of what awaits his followers. 
And J.C. Ryle says, It is good to have the coming glory of Christ and his people deeply impressed on our minds because we're apt to forget it, aren't we? Don't we forget? And so on the mountain of transfiguration, in a sense, Jesus peeled back his humanity and they were allowed for a moment. Peter, James, and John were allowed to see his glory and his majesty. But that's what awaits us as followers of Christ. The second reason Ryle said that this is clearest evidence for the dead to rise again is because of Moses and Elijah being there. And they're in bodily form. Peter, James, and John hear them talking to Jesus. You say, so what? Moses had died 1,480 years before that. Elijah had died, nine not died, had been taken up into heaven 900 years before that. So what we read from 2 Kings 2 is 900 years before the transfiguration of Jesus. So what happens after death is strange to us. We bury our loved ones, as we should, and we, we bury them out of sight. We see them no more. Their bodies become dust. But will they really live again? And the transfiguration is the clearest evidence that, yes, the dead will rise again. We typically think about Jesus. I want you to think about Moses and Elijah, that they were there, and they were there in bodily form. Here are two men appearing on earth in their bodies who had been long separated from the land of the living. There is no such thing as annihilation, as some teach. Their spirits live as surely as we live ourselves and will hereafter appear in glorified bodies. So the dead in Christ who've gone before us are just as much and more so alive than we are. You say, how do I know? Transfiguration. Elijah and Moses. Third thing that the transfiguration shows us is Christ is superior to all. Moses was great. Elijah was great. Moses was the greatest lawgiver. Elijah was the greatest prophet. But Christ is far superior to either one of them. And so when Peter says, let us build three little tabernacles here, like memorials to you and Moses and Elijah, he says to Jesus, the voice comes out of the clouds and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So he is far above Moses and Elijah. Christ alone is the one who hears those words. Now, in closing, as Christ followers, we are so out of step with our culture at this point because we live our lives as followers of Christ with knowledge that there's coming an afterlife. If there is no afterlife, if, if it truly is just annihilation or being caught up with the one, you know, pervasive consciousness or whatever, who cares what we do? You know, just live like the devil then. Uh, but, but we live with the thought that this life is just a very, very, very brief preface before eternity. And so we can seem so out of step because the culture wants to think there is no afterlife. And if there is, there's only heaven because certainly there would not be a hell. And so we can appear to be the most foolish losers in the world, sacrificing our lives for a fairy tale, for a myth, or some kind of wishful thinking about life after death. But Jesus has promised that when he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So we're not in the position of losers. A couple of months ago, I, 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 uh, at 
First Presbyterian Day School's graduation, uh, I, I mentioned a friend of mine who pastors in Cleveland, Mississippi. And we were in seminary together. His name is Tim. And he has an elder in his church named Boo Ferris. And some of you heard me tell this. But, but um, Boo Ferris, uh, well, Cleveland, Mississippi is the home of Delta State University. And this elder named Boo Ferris was the first man to receive a full scholarship to play baseball at Mississippi State University. Now, this was back shortly after the Depression. I mean, this was a big thing, a full scholarship to play baseball. So he has a stellar career at Mississippi State. Uh, he goes on to become a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. His roommate was Ted Williams. Um, you can read all about it in his biography, Boo, A Life in Baseball Well Lived. And he had a career-ending injury uh, that today could be repaired. Uh, his shoulder could have been scoped, and he'd been back and playing again nine months later. But back then, it ended his career. So he returned to Delta State to become the head baseball coach. Years later, he had the distinction of being the coach who cut John Grisham from the baseball team. John Grisham writes the introduction to this biography, and it's worth reading just to read uh, John Grisham's introduction. Um, Boo Ferris, though, says how uh, on one occasion he was walking through Cleveland, Mississippi, and he came on a group of boys playing baseball, and he, of course, everybody knew who this man was. He was legendary, and he knew one of the boys in the outfield, and the boy in the outfield yelled, hey, Mr. Boo, Mr. Boo, and he yelled out at the outfielder, uh, what's the score? And, and the kid yelled back, uh, 18, 18 to nothing, 18 to nothing. Well, whose favor? Your favor or their favor? Oh, it's their favor. 18 to nothing. Well, you don't seem too discouraged about it. You don't seem too sad. And he said, huh, no problem, Mr. Boo. We ain't been up to bat yet. <laughs> we ain't been up to bat yet. Christ will get the victory. Let's pray together. And I'll have a blessing for our meal, too. Father, we... Thank you for these glimpses into what awaits after this life. Death scares us. It's such a mysterious thing. It's such a horrifying thing. And yet we see the promises that Christ gave us, that he's gone to prepare a place for us, uh, that we don't try to get there through our works or morality or our own philosophy or knowledge or good deeds, but only through Jesus. We pray that we might, like Elisha, have firm commitment to follow you at whatever cost. Uh, we pray that we would see how brief this life is and we would seek not only to be followers of Christ but to minister to those around us to lead and nurture others as well. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises and your comfort. And we ask now your blessing on uh, this food that we will eat momentarily and our fellowship together. May it bring you honor and glory and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.